So what does farming look like if you're on a reserve? Agriculture's got challenges no matter if you're on or off reserve. Doesn't matter if it's Alberta, somewhere else in the prairies, somewhere else in North America. There's still financing you gotta deal with, unpredictable weather, and just stress in general. But there are certain challenges you face when you're farming on reserve that you wouldn't face if you're farming off reserve. But that could also mean that there's certain opportunities on reserve that you couldn't find off reserve. I'm Derek Leahy, and in this episode of Rural Roots to Climate Solutions, we're taking a look at agriculture on Kainai First Nation. This podcast episode is part of one of Rural Roots to Climate Solutions' newer projects. If this is the first time you've come across Rural Roots, first of all, I just want to say, Oki, nice to meet you. Thanks for tuning in. Rural Roots to Climate Solutions, the podcast, we like to highlight the on-farm and on-ranch climate solutions that are good for the farm, but are also good for the climate at the exact same time. Now, the project I'm talking about, the project that's part of the podcast episode you're listening to right now it's called and i have to admit my blackfoot pronunciation is less than stellar but the project's called the six gates agriculture project so we're looking at those on-farm and on-ranch climate solutions but we're trying to look at them through a blackfoot lens so they might be great for the farm they might be great for the climate but we also want to explore how they fit into blackfoot culture So to start, we thought maybe we should take a look at what agriculture looks like on reserve within the Blackfoot Confederacy. So we're starting with Cyrus and Roy Weaselfat, who have been farming on the reserve at Kainai First Nation for quite a while. They provide some really valuable insights into what agriculture at Kainai looks like at the moment and what it could look like going forward. And we're hoping we'll have an opportunity to take a look at agriculture and the two other Blackfoot reserves, so Pikani and Siksika, as we produce more episodes ago with this series. Uh, who knows, maybe we'll even have that opportunity to look at what agriculture looks like in the fourth Blackfoot nation, so Amskapi Pikani, which is located in Montana. Your host for this episode is going to be Lance Tailfeathers, who is a member of Kainai First Nation, and we promise to provide you with more details on the Siksikaitsatipi agriculture project as we release more of these podcast episodes. Welcome to uh, Rural Roots to Climate Solutions podcast. Uh, Today's guests we have uh, from the Kainai First Nation, uh, Cyrus uh, Weaselfat and also Roy Weaselfat, who have done a lot of farming and I believe some ranching um, on the Blood Reserve. So just as we get started, maybe uh, Cyrus, if you can introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Cyrus Weaselfat. And I'm from the Blood Tribe, Kanai. I farm on the reserve as well as work as an agronomist in Tabor, Alberta with independent crop inputs. I also recently started a crop input company based on the Blood Reserve called Kanai Ag Services. Okay, our other guest with us is also Roy Weaselfat. Uh, Roy, if you could just give us a bit of an introduction as to uh, basically where where you're from and uh, what, what you do. Hello, I'm uh, Roy Weaselfat. <clears throat> I'm president of Red Crow Community College. That's located on our in our community, the Blood Tribe. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> for Red Crow College, uh, we're uh, always offering post-secondary 
education and training opportunities. And one of our programs is the <clears throat> Red Crow College Agricultural Certificate Program and the Agricultural Preparatory Program. And personally, I've been involved in agriculture all my life. I had worked with my dad, Dan Weaselfat Sr., and we pretty much uh, been in agriculture for a long time. And that's just basically a personal connect connection. Now, what about you, Cyrus? Same connection. I've worked with my dad, Roy, and uh, I still remember being around my grandfather, Dan, when he was ranching, raising cattle. Did lots of haying with uh, with my dad and uncle. Well, so that just, uh, did that give you like maybe an interest in agriculture or just? Not at the time when I was young. I didn't get interested in until I was in my late teens, early 20s actually. All right, so you mentioned uh, in your introduction that you have a um, uh, your own business, Kainai Ag Services. Um, Maybe if you could just talk a little bit about Kainayag Services and uh, what does the service do for um, agricultural producers in general? Kainayag Services, or I like to call it KAS, it's a first ever First Nation owned full service crop input retail business operating on the Blood Reserve and surrounding farm community in southern Alberta. KAS specializes in, in innovative and custom solutions, solutions which uh, flow out of good agronomy. Uh, these solutions are based on good agronomic advice. K KAS brings a full suite of products to grow profit for, for producers, improve soil health. Uh, uh, a list of services offered is basic agronomy service, crop uh, um crop advice and I personally I specialize in forage crop production. Uh, we sell with blended and uh, liquid fertilizers, uh, offer fertilizer and spreading services and we also offer crop uh, protection products like herbicides and fungicides as well as seed and inoculants. Uh, soil sampling, I think I mentioned that and uh, KAS is also uh, supported by uh, Farm Credit Canada, so we offer flexible financing as well for your crop input needs. How long has the service been in operation? We uh, started selling and operating in November 2020. Mm -hmm. It's almost a year now. What are some of the things as far as um, getting yourself going and getting started? Well, getting started... Uh, because I worked in crop input business with ICI, I gained a lot of knowledge through uh, a lot of knowledge and skills working working with that company and knowing all the suppliers, getting all that uh, lined up so I could offer offer that to farmers on the reserve. I guess I'd ask maybe KAS uh, your successes that. If anything that you'd like to highlight from, I guess, you're still just getting started. It's a competitive industry, first of all, crop inputs, very competitive. And uh, it's pretty much monopolized by big corp corporations. Like and uh, for me to still be there like a year later is, I guess, one an accomplishment in itself. And I 
I hope to get a location maybe opened up in Colehurst or Lethbridge, uh, at least an office. Uh, Roy, I'd like to ask you now, um, you mentioned about the irrigation, doing your own irrigation on the um, Kainai First Nation or Blood Reserve as we most, most, of it, most of us know it is. How did that all begin for you, or how did you get that started? Because you know, there's not a lot of blood tribe members or community members that uh, do a lot of the irrigation. I think, uh, of course, it's through our BTAP farms, but also individuals themselves. Uh, well, I I would have to go back to my, I guess, early days in post-secondary. I, was, I graduated from the agricultural program at Lethbridge College in 1974, and I did a lot of work with the different irrigation uh, companies in Lethbridge, setting up irrigation equipment in the Tabor area. <laughs> so as a, I guess, a summer student and working in the irrigation field, and when I uh, graduated, there was a, <clears throat> a project on the Blood Reserve. Uh, that was the first uh, <clears throat> I guess start up for uh, irrigation farmers for blood tribe members, and the project uh, I think recruited about sixteen blood tribe members, and the project had partnerships with the province, the blood tribe, and uh, the funding c- came and uh, irrigation equipment was purchased, and I worked in the. <clears throat> in the area of uh, assembling the equipment and putting it out to the various fields that the farmers had. And most of the uh, farmers that were involved were uh, located along the main uh, St. Mary's Canal or not too far from from that canal, and that's where the the water came from. And I think initially the uh, farmers were you know, very interested. And I think what was the downfall of it was that the uh, the children of the, those people who participated weren't that interested. And though they were a bit older people and they maintained it as, as much as they could until they could no longer because of age and lack of, uh, I guess, family input. So I think very early I was involved in irrigation. I had my own irrigation equipment because our land was situated right along the St. Mary's Canal. But again, I fell, to the, fell into the same situation. My kids weren't old enough to you know, get involved. And hiring was kind of a sporadic, you know, couldn't really get people to help too. So I think uh, that, knowing that part, and for me, I just maintained the, uh, you know, the the cattle that I had, some horses, some dry land. So it was more or less always a sort of a small operation that I maintained. I think basically it was just to maintain the legacy of my dad's farming all all his life he farmed, and he was quite successful at it. So we just continued to, you know, operate a farm that, you know, we could uh, 
keep up, and we just kept going. But I think the irrigation uh, <coughs> uh, project kind of uh, set things up for the, the larger irrigation project, the Blood Tribe, BTAP. So I think uh, through that experience, you know, that uh, <coughs> came about. The other uh, part of it was that there wasn't really a market that we could, you know, sell to. A lot of hay was produced and the market just wasn't there. So that kind of uh, impacted those that were uh, irrigating hay crops. With the present circumstance of uh, federal reg regulations through the Indian Act, I think community members doing their own farming, uh, what were some of the challenges for you to, to actually just to become self-sufficient? Because not a lot of people maybe don't attempt this. Well, I th like I said, for me, it was always sort of a, maybe a hobby farm or whatever. It was, I didn't develop it so as it could be a major, you know, income-producing uh, uh, <laughs> uh, livelihood for me because I was always working. I always had a job that provided for most of my uh, needs for my family. And I think it's uh, what I see is maybe those people who have access to land, they could uh, start something, start small, get the experience, whether if it's in cattle or uh, dry land hay farming. And if they have access to water, they might plan for the future. And I think a lot uh, is dependent on planning. What do you want to do with the land base that you have? And we have the land base to continue what uh, we're doing on our farm. So I think that's basically what needs to be done. As far as for the supports, I know the tribe did have, you know, financial supports for those farmers that were uh, farming at the time, but it needs to be better planned. Uh, the uh, tribe did provide for operational funding, and I think uh, <laughs> it was uh, along the lines of a revolving fund. If a farmer, you know, borrowed from that uh, revolving fund, and if it was, you know, paid back, it could have kept going. Okay, so uh, part of Rural Roots, uh, that's who I'm here on behalf of. I'm what they call their um, uh, 68-to-P coordinator, so my um, part of my uh, role is to not only highlight or to seek out those who are agricultural producers um, within the Blackfoot Confederacy, but also Rural Roots uh, to Climate Solutions. Their purpose is not only to highlight what farming looks like uh, within the Blackfoot Confederacy, but to make aware what ag producers are doing in regard to regenerative agricultural practices, like best practice. So maybe I'll start with you, Cyrus. Uh, what is KAS uh, as far as your own, I guess, farming practices in regard to climate solutions or climate change is what we call it? Well, on the farming side, um, on the reserve, we're predominantly hay farmers. So, you know, farming hay in itself is beneficial to include in any kind of crop rotation. Um, 
you know, it improves soil structure. It also uh, improves drainage and water hole capacity in the soil. And higher rates of carbon allocation are also uh, put back into the soil. It also helps reduce in erosion and whatnot. You know, and if you're putting in legumes like alfalfa, it helps fix nitri nit nitrogen by pulling from the air and bringing it into the ground. So, you know, just having, uh, you know, forages in general is good for the environment. You know, currently we've got uh, Timothy under the pivot, and grass is, a, you know, probably one of the biggest uh, sequesters of uh, carbon, brings it into the soil. So, and on the KAS side, I work with uh, various suppliers that do offer environmentally friendly uh, fertilizers or uh, soil health products that you could apply to the soil, such as uh, Advanced Ag, who are based out of the based out of Raymond. They're also a First Nation uh, company that sell a, a bacteria that you add to the soil, and it promotes soil health as well as um, offering different types of fertilizers like phosphorus products that have been uh, developed through um, pulling it out of city waste and uh, putting it into a granule, granule fertilizer. So working with companies that are environmentally uh, uh, conscious is one of the ways that KAS is being more environmentally friendly. As well as me myself, I'm working on getting um, certified in the 4R uh, stewardship program offered by the fertilizer, uh, Canada Fertilizer. So, and basically, that just comes down to uh, you know putting down the right fertilizer at the right rate, at the right time, and in the right place. So, I think you know being more being more efficient at the farm will just translate into better um, environment, better benefits to environment. Because if uh, farmers don't like to waste fertilizer, and waste of fertilizer contributes to, you know, contaminating water and soil. Um, Roy, I'd like to ask you the same question, probably your experience with, uh, maybe through the agricultural program through the college or um, with the irrigation that you've been involved with over the years, as far as, I guess, best practice or with those uh, climate change, um, is, has much changed from your time, Roy? Okay. Well, I think uh, when you go back to, you know, agriculture uh, on the reserve, I think way back would be in maybe 40s and 50s, prior to uh, social services being introduced into our uh, Bud Tribe community, all members worked on the reserve. Either they worked for farmers off the reserve or they did their own haying during the summer season when haying was being done. And I think a lot of our members were, were better off than they are now and simply because they had worked uh, the way it is now when you talk about uh, farming. I don't think the, the farming at the time, or uh, we weren't that aware of the uh, technical aspects of farming. 
we knew everything was, you know, natural. And I think that's uh, the benefit of uh, uh, agriculture at the time. And most farmers that I know, and I know my dad, he did a lot of strip farming where, uh, <clears throat> you know, weed uh, control was, uh, was, you know, better managed and moisture control. And with today's practices of uh, continuous cropping, I think there's more, uh, I think, uh, like fertilizer sprays that are, are being used, which aren't good for, you know, the soil or even the, the, the water, the rivers and streams. Much of that, uh, <coughs> those chemicals leak into our water supply. So I think uh, as far as <clears throat> taking advantage of those uh, old methods of uh, cropping, they weren't good, you know, because it, they, were, they didn't uh, produce any of that, uh, the toxic chemicals that are now, you know, as part of the, uh, <clears throat> the farming practice. So I, I would say those were best practices at the time. And in terms of cost to today, you need to put a lot of money into fertilizers and sprays. Whereas, you know, hay farming, once you put that hay crop in, it's continuous. And when you do, you know, put it back into a, a crop such as grains, then, you know, you, you don't have to apply as many, as much fertilizer or chemical. So it kind of helps out that okay so a technical question for you cyrus um these are just ba basically just going to throw these out there you're maybe you just tell you want to respond um how would how would we reduce methane emissions in agriculture agricultural ecosystems can hold substantial carbon reserves primarily in the soil organic matter um well bringing carbon into the soil by uh, increasing storage of carbon or reducing the loss. And this could be done by implementing a solid crop rotation, decrease bare fallow, like don't leave the, you know, stop ripping up the land and letting all the, everything escape. Um, avoid uh, over application of fertilizers. So taking soil tests, knowing what you got in there and putting just enough in there for the crop and manage tillage and, um, residues mm -hmm. and you know maybe you know incorporate uh, you know put trees in or you know put in uh, put in grass and maybe areas that don't typically grow good crops mm -hmm. you know it's just so as long as it's pulling in uh, carbon from the air would that be the same as this was it nitrous oxide emissions also yeah. into agriculture yes, yes some of them are the same okay. um, you know, except in intensive systems and high rainfall area areas, reduction in nitrous oxide emissions with these with uh, some of these, like using less nitrogen fertilizer, which uh, only makes sense if more fertilizer is being added than needed, mm -hmm. and uh, using soil testing, tissue testing, as well as you know knowing what to put in, mm -hmm. put in more than the crop uses particular when it's not using high using uh, much fertilizer it's gonna you know 
go volatile and you'll lose it. Uh, this year, I think we experienced uh, a drought. Did you were you impacted by that or? Yes, if you didn't have irrigation, your crops really suffered this year. So, in southern Alberta is all always has been dry. So, you know, having irrigation is very important times in times like this. I think as most are aware, there are certain hurdles with First Nation members uh, who attempt to do their own farming, such as yourselves. Um, I think we've been through this before. Maybe if you wanted to comment on it, uh, Cyrus, the policies and regulations that you would think would be beneficial to somebody who wants to do their own farming. Like, what, what do they? What should they anticipate if they just want us just to start today? Well, one of the things I was up against when I put in a uh, irrigation pivot and uh, built a hay shed four, four years ago. And one of the biggest uh, barriers was just getting the capital to put those in. Everything you do in agriculture costs a huge amount of dollars. So having land that can't be bored on is one of the biggest things I think with, uh, would stop uh, a guy on the reserve to farm. That's one of the biggest barriers I see right now. And I know that's a complex situation. I don't have any kind of remedies for that, but that's one thing that could be addressed. Um, I'd like to ask you, Roy, if, uh, since you've been in this um, a long time, the tr uh, traditional knowledge through, I guess, our Blackfoot cultural lens. I know that's part of the um, sort of my role here is to sort of make aware maybe those are some things that we've done before, uh, Western farming, so to speak. Uh, so maybe just some of your thoughts. Do we apply any of that to farming or when it was introduced? Like this, whatever, whatever your knowledge base there is. Well, I guess in, in terms of uh, starting up, I think uh, Indian Affairs uh, way back had loans available for those that were interested in starting up an agricultural enterprise. But again, you know, I think it's the, uh, the lack of uh, financial planning on the part of the, uh, uh, the farmer that uh, they just uh, didn't uh, weren't, didn't, weren't able to service those uh, loans that they made. Yeah. yeah, and I think putting uh, some of your your own resources into it is it's very important, I think, because if you're borrowing on everything, then you have a huge debt loan. So if you could put some of your own resources into it, and you know things could work better for the the on reserve farmer, and I think that's what I, I'm doing now. So yeah, I've just, I've just maintained a small basic herd of twenty to thirty cows. I've got it up to forty now, and it's just a matter. Of, I keep expanding. I think you can get to a certain number where, you know, that will become. A little easier, and there is opportunities for <clears throat> raising cattle. There, I know of five or six on reserve uh, 
ranchers who are doing quite well. Yeah, so I, I think it's just a matter of acquiring, you know, the grazing land and you follow a plan and you can, you know, be successful. That's kind of what, you know, I know. It's, it's, it's a challenge, you know. Uh, cause I, I know of two uh, people who started out with 20 cows and they built it up to over 100. Yeah, just on their own. Yeah, so it's uh, building a herd takes a bit of time. Yeah. Maybe if you could also touch on, I know we spoke about it earlier, uh, the program that the college where you work at, or, or what they offer, or what, what that exactly is about. Yeah. Well, uh, the program at Red Crow College, uh, we started with the. Uh, <clears throat> one-year agricultural certificate. It's a management program. So our program transfers to the Olds Agricultural College for year two. And when we started the program, we realized that uh, our students weren't uh, very uh, knowledgeable about agriculture. So we added the uh, preparatory program where uh, the uh, academic uh, program area was offered. And then we included two uh, cultural courses and one history course. And I, I, have, I know that uh, the Blood Tribe is one of the most successful tribes that transitioned from the buffalo hunting era into agriculture. There is documentation to that. I think if people are aware of that uh, article by a, uh, an Indian agent, uh, he reported that on that success and the downfall of that. So it, it's, we are successful given the opportunity. So for the Red Crow College program, you know, we're trying to generate interest in our younger members to look at agriculture as a as a a business or as a uh, an area of employment. I think Southern Alberta is you know it's mainly agriculture. I think there's so so many jobs that are related to ag, like the processing food processing industry, as well as, you know, the irrigation farming, all those uh, areas. And if one were to get into, let's say, heavy equipment operation, they can find employment in that area. So we're trying the, uh, the trades too, so as we can get our students to uh, get some apprenticeships going. And even our new building, we have a lot of laborers uh, now working, and we are hoping to have more apprenticeships through that. So there's there's a lot of opportunity on the reserve because there will be other building projects that are coming up. Good, thank you. Cyrus, is there anything, any additional comments that you'd like to add? Maybe some contact uh, information for those interested in particular economy ag services. Yeah, um, 
you have anybody like interested in farming on the reserve, uh, particularly uh, band members, uh, please give me a call. I'm available. Uh, I offer agronomy services. Uh, you know, currently I have a lot of uh, ranchers on the reserve who contact me for establishing forage crops. Um, I do sell forage seed. I offer services to actually get it seeded as well. So, um, and I guess any other, um, I do operate in southern Alberta, not just the reserve. Thank you and thanks to both of you for taking the time to talk to us today. Roots to Climate Solutions is an Alberta-based initiative empowering agriculture producers and the communities they live in with climate solutions. Rural Roots runs workshops, farm field days, webinars, and social innovation labs. We produce a farmer's blog. We work with rural communities to develop their own renewable energy projects. And of course, we do this podcast. For more information about us and what we do, Go to the website, which is www.rr2cs.ca. Lance Tailfeathers was your host, and he edited this episode. Your podcast producer was myself, Derek Leahy, and the rest of the Rural Roots team is Marie Galanka, Brenda Barrett, and Marta Svart. This podcast episode was funded by the Calgary Foundation. This podcast episode was recorded in Calgary and Lethbridge, which means... This episode was recorded on Treaty 7 lands and in Métis Region 3. Happy farming wherever you are in Alberta. And remember, what's good for the climate is good for the farm. Mm -hmm.